introduce Jack Carson to you. He's the founder of the David and Jonathan Foundation and of the Salem Biblical Garden and Archaeology Museum. And a whole lot of other things too. I'll let him explain more about where he came from and how he got the vision for establishing the Salem Biblical Garden. We've done quite a number of seminars and meetings together, traveling around the country and uh, doing seminars on different aspects. And I would be often asked to deal with guilt manipulation and uh, he would deal with biblical economics. And we had uh, a great team at doing ministry, especially back in the 90s. That was a really outstanding series of meetings as we were trying to see that the New South Africa was built on some solid biblical principles. Things would be a lot worse if there hadn't been groups like that doing these, these ministries. During our Great Commission course, we had the joy of going to Salem Biblical Gardens and what an inspiring journey through redemptive history it is. It's an inspiring location. It's almost like taking a visit to the Holy Land because while that would be quite far and quite expensive, this is quite easy, very close at hand. And it's, it's a piece of Israel right here close to us. And thank you, Jack. Over to you. Yeah. So Peter, thank you very much. It's uh, really an honor, pleasure to be here this evening to speak to you about something that you know a lot more than me. I'm, I'm sort of more on the evangelical side where we're trying to bring the word across and the apologetics and stuff like that. And um, the history and the Reformation history, I read all the emails that you sent me and uh, wow it's a lot of work to go through and to know all of that but of course it does make a huge difference that we we do get to know this <coughs> excuse me uh, the absolute lack of knowledge of where we come from and where the roots of our faith are is actually quite frightening in, in most churches um, and so let me start off by saying something about uh, the David and Jonathan Foundation. Uh, because we were posted to Israel as, as very young diplomats and head of the um, commerce or the trade department in the embassy in Tel Aviv, I won't tell you which years, okay, but uh, quite a while back, okay. And uh, suffice to say, at that stage, uh, South Africa still had a very strong embassy in Israel and many, many things were happening between the Israeli government and the South African government in the days when we were fighting common enemies. And uh, Peter was up on the border, <laughs> you know, who the enemies were, and uh, we were all geared up to go and fight and to save our country, which some people sort of put off as, as nothing, but in those days it wasn't nothing, it was a, a real threat. Um, the MiGs that were flying over and dropping bombs and shooting things and the tanks, the T-54s and things were actually real. And um, I remember I was in Wingfield, I was a uh, second lieutenant in the Cape Town Rifles. The old name was the Duke of Edinburgh's old <laughs> rifles and um, own rifles rather. And uh, yeah, we, we were getting ready to actually go out and fight in Angola just as a bit of a background. 
And uh, in those days, you didn't think much of it. You knew that there was a, a serious threat. Uh, as I say, those things that I've just discussed now were actually for real. Um, and you had to go and do your thing. But the Lord had different plans for Anne and I. We'd just been married for a year. And um, our MP walked into the camp there and said, could they speak to Lieutenant Carstens? And so I had to go forward there and they called me and I found out that the Department of Foreign Affairs needed us to go uh, as my first assignment actually uh, to be the South African trade attaché in, in Israel. And so we had to jump on an aeroplane and within two weeks of being told that's our post, we actually landed there. And it was quite extraordinary because in those days, um, the Prime Minister was uh, Mr. Began, Moshe Dayan was still walking around, Shimon Peres, all these people we actually got to know at diplomatic functions. And it was quite interesting to see these people that had been through uh, the Six-Day War, 67, you recall, and also uh, the 1973 uh, onslaught against Israel on Yom Kippur, the holiest day when they woke up, they were being attacked from Egypt and from Syria and Jordan. The whole lot sort of came in against them. So anyway, this is the country that we went to, and uh, to be honest, uh, we'd also, only thing we knew about Israel was the Bible, uh, which actually gives you a very good grounding because <laughs> all the places mentioned in the Bible are actually still there. And I remember coming home to tell Annie this is our post and she said, wow, I've seen photographs of that. It's got palm trees and nice beaches. It must be great. <laughs> so this was going to be a, a holiday. Um, yeah, and, and so of course Israel is just an incredible country. If you don't mind me just rambling on a bit about it. Because how many of you have actually been to Israel? No, I can't believe it. Not one. Oh my word. <laughs> you do know that Jesus walked around there and stayed there, right? <laughs> anyway, so you can crisscross this country basically in, in one day if you're really, really serious about it. Um, we've got two boys and at one stage we took them across to Israel just to see where we were staying and what we were doing and stuff like that. And uh, Dirk, my young, youngest son, uh, it's quite adventurous, so I said to him, we were staying in Jerusalem, and I said, so Dirk, what would you like to do today? He said, well then, I'd like to be swimming in the Mediterranean Sea, that would be good. And the Med's always quite a warm sea, not many waves, it's a kind of a, a over-glorified pond, actually. <laughs> can be, can be. Anyway, so we jumped in the car, let's say, not too early in the morning and we drove down from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv and to Haifa and uh, between Tel Aviv and Haifa long sandy beaches nice warm Mediterranean you just walk straight into that water 
and uh, he had a great swim there and everybody was frolicking in the, in the beach and all that sort of stuff. So after about an hour, uh, Dan, I think I'm finished now with the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, what would you now like to do? Um, how about we go skiing on Mount Hermon? Hey, that's not a bad idea. Okay, let's go. So, you jump in the car in Tel Aviv and you drive for about three and a half, maybe four hours all along the coast, past Caesarea and Haifa and Aku and these places and eventually get to the Golden Heights. And uh, there's Mount Hermon which has got snow on it for most of the year. In fact, it's that snow that melts that goes into the Sea of Galilee, right? And uh, you can hire a, whatever you want to hire, either skis or a little, uh, what do they call those, bobsleigh things, go up to the top, come all the way down. It's quite high. In fact, it's bitterly cold up there. And uh, so after an hour or two of skiing in Israel, said, okay, well, it's uh, like after lunch, let's have lunch there. What would you now like to do, Derek? Um, how about going down to a lot to dive in the Red Sea for the corals and the fish there? Well, that is the kind of stuff you can do in Israel. <laughs> of course, I said no to that one because that actually is about a five-hour drive from, uh, from Jerusalem. But the next day, I hopped on a bus, and went down and went snorkeling and goggling and in the Red Sea, which is quite amazing. So that's on the adventure side. I'm telling you that because I see a lot of young people in front of me, and I really think it'd be wonderful if you could go. The whole kibbutz set up and the farming and agriculture, it's, it's quite phenomenal. And of course, the, the climate in Israel is anything from up on the Golan, as I said, it's snow, deciduous fruit, uh, all the apples and pears and things come from there. As you move down and down and down towards the Sea of Galilee, you're starting to hit a sort of um, Durban-like uh, climate, where it's, it's hot and moggy and uh, mangoes and avocados and pineapples and stuff. You know, I can't believe this is all in the same country. And of course, as soon as you go south of Jerusalem, you're into the Negev uh, desert there, and uh, you're trekking along with Moses and the, and the group as they're looking for the promised land. <laughs> so, incredible. And because of our diplomatic st um, status there, uh, one day somebody, a businessman, phones, I'm going down to St. Catherine's, which is uh, the site for the, of the Mount Sinai and you fly right into the Negev desert which has just got peaks and peaks and stuff and valleys and, and sand and there's nothing growing there and the plane sort of finds a little landing spot, six-seater and then you walk the last part to St. Catherine's you climb up there and the monks have got their homes sorted out there and they've been looking after this site since 340 <laughs> AD, you know. And all the people that die there, their, their skulls are packed one on top of each other in a huge room. And so there's like hundreds of guys that have died there. 
And that story it's in itself is interesting because, you know, it's Helena, the, the mother of Constantine, that was sent by the, by the king uh, after he converted to Christianity to go and find out what's going on in this place called the Holy Land and to designate the sites so that they could make them holy sites. And so she would arrive and she would ask, let's say in Jerusalem, okay, where was the Lord crucified? But I mean, this is three, what's it, 324, 330 after Christ. Um, nobody was there <laughs> when it happened. So they had to sort of, well, you know what, down, if you go down this little valley here, yeah, there's a place where there's a big cross and people have been going there for, for years. We think that's it. Okay. Christ was crucified there. Please build a church. Here's the money. Go for it. And that's how she went through the whole place, like Bethlehem. And if you go to Bethlehem, it's, it's quite actually a bit of a shocker because you go to the church in Bethlehem, uh, the spot, the cave where Jesus was born, um, is about 20 feet below ordinary um, ground level, obviously, with all the fighting and stuff. A wonderful church built on top of it. But there's actually two areas. There's, there's a room that divides the Greek Orthodox place where Jesus got born was in that room. <laughs> and, and the Russian Orthodox one or the Roman Catholic one is in that room. So you get the guys coming there and kissing different pieces of ground, which really is, I don't really know how they know. But it might have some historical basis, but the truth of the matter is that Bethlehem is Bethlehem. And you can't get away from that. And uh, that's wonderful. And you can go out into the fields of Bethlehem where the, where the shepherds were that heard the first clarion call to go and look for the king of the Jews that had been born. And uh, Bethlehem's actually more than what most people would, would surmise because Bethlehem is just outside of Jerusalem. If you stand in Jerusalem and you look across the valleys and that, you can see Bethlehem, um, the town against the hill on the other side. And that is actually where they raised the sheep or the lambs for the slaughter for the temple. So these weren't like ordinary shepherds or ordinary sheep. These were sheep that had been that were gathered together and, and the, the year's sacrifices and the Passover sacrifice, very important that they would choose the right lamb to go into Jerusalem and to hold these feasts. So isn't that an appropriate place uh, for the angels to appear? and to talk about uh, the birth of Jesus. So there's many, many incidents like that. And to get to my real point <laughs> is uh, we have to go to Romans 11. And if I could just read you something there. Um, Paul is the guy that, as you know, was the apostle to the Gentiles. And it was important for him that this church that had started in Rome 
and actually went through a big transition. Um, there was an emperor called uh, Claudius that actually banned the Jewish people out of, out of Jerusalem. And um, the, the first church, obviously, in any place in, in Israel was a Jewish church, Jewish believing church. The first apostles, the first believers were all Jews that came to faith in Jesus Yeshua as the Messiah. So in Rome, that was the same thing. Paul always went to the synagogue first because obviously it makes sense. If you know the, the history and the expectations of waiting for Messiah and you've been schooled in that from day one in the synagogues, that you might be the guy to understand that Jesus is the one that they were talking about in the Old Testament, in the Torah. So, Paul's off to the synagogue in every city he goes to, tries to convince the Jews first. And there's that wonderful scripture in um, Romans, is it 115? If I can just get that quickly. Um, Yeah, actually 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, says Paul, for it is God's power working unto salvation uh, to everyone who believes with a personal trust and a confident surrender and firm reliance. And normally that's where everybody stops reading. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of salvation for all that believe. And then it says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he felt absolutely committed to first go to the Jewish people who had the seed of Messiah planted in them from the Old Testament from the beginning and to try and convince them first before he went to the Gentiles. And so when, when the church started in Rome it was basically out of the synagogue, all the believers there, the Jews got transported out of the city by, by edict, and then uh, this edict fell away when Claudius then uh, got deposed and the Jewish people came back. And then suddenly this church wasn't anymore a Jewish church or a Jewish background church. It was a Gentile church. And so there's a lot of questions that Paul tries to answer to these Gentile believers who now have to accept the Jewish people. And of course the Jewish people came with their traditions and the this and that and the other thing which sometimes made it difficult. And so uh, he had to try and educate them about how the Jewish people fit into the church, the church of Jesus. And you're going to read Romans 9. 10 and 11 and those are his three chapters where he tries to explain this whole thing and basically things like is God finished with the Jews Romans 9 no certainly not and then he goes on and on and on but one of the mysteries that he mentions is the mystery in Romans 11 um, 
where he actually says um, that it was God who gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall. Um, let their eyes be darkened or dimmed so that they cannot see and make them bend their backs, whatever. Um, because it is now basically, if I get to that point, the time of, until the time of the Gentiles has come to, the, to an end. I think that's in 25. There's to be self-opinionated, talking to the Gentile believers now. I do not want you to miss this hidden truth. Uh, a hardening, a temporary hardening has befallen a part of Israel until the full number of the ingathering of the Gentiles has come in. And so, after that, all Israel will be saved. You probably know the scripture, Romans 11. So here we have to do uh, with a, a nation who has been partially blinded to who Christ really was, who the Savior is, because God took his attention off them and put it on the Gentile people and gave them an opportunity to come into the kingdom. So think about it. You're Jewish. Um, you've got the background to the Messiah going to come. There's lots and lots of prophecies about it. But you're blinded to Jesus when he does come so that the Gentiles can come in. Okay? And I always thought, woo, I wonder. I'd like to ask God that question. Is that fair? You know, is it fair that they were blinded so that we can come in and the, what happens to them? Because obviously they need salvation just as much as anybody else. You need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so this is, the, this is a, a hidden mystery. It says so here in Romans 11. And so when the, the Jewish people do come to salvation, this is my point I'm coming to with the David and Jonathan Foundation, when we were in Israel, we actually visited some of the earliest uh, congregations of Jewish people that actually came to faith. And we saw how amazing it is that when someone who knows the whole context and the roots and the... Uh, the prophecies about the coming of Messiah actually embrace him. How amazing they are and how strong they are in their belief and how wonderful it is that the, the way that they can tell that to other people. So we thought, you know, somebody's got to help these guys somewhere and there's lots of people helping, I think, I'm sure. But these people, as soon as they do believe, very much like Muslims and other faiths as well, they get kicked out of their houses, they're no longer sons and daughters, they are on their own, they lose jobs, they are persecuted. Some of our congregation people that we support actually have their tires slashed, they have their photographs put on poles by the ultra-Orthodox, don't have anything to do with these Jews, they are traitors. They have now changed. They're Christians. They're no longer Jews. 
And so in a sense, they don't actually realize that they actually become more Jewish than, than what they were. And of course, they are followers of Christ, but Christ uh, has given them more and, and made all those prophecies from Torah uh, and the Tanakh come to life for them. So it's incredible. So we give churches in South Africa opportunity of partnering with a church in Israel, a congregation in Israel, and helping those Jewish people, helping them evangelize, giving them materials, supplying lovely Russian uh, Hebrew books, <laughs> Peter. <laughs> because, you know, after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1990, over one million Jewish Russian, Russian Jewish people came to Israel, fled the country there and were let out. And so there's a huge, all the signs in Israel are now in Hebrew, English and Russian. And I think Russian actually comes second and then English. <laughs> so a huge influence and uh, many of those Russians actually, and this is God's plan, I'm sure it's like that. Many of those Russians had actually heard the gospel in Russia. And when they came and they got involved with their own culture and their own uh, synagogues and, and that had any taste of uh, the freedom in Christ, they switched to congregations and, you know, left the synagogue. So they're worth supporting and they're worth encouraging and uh, that's what our ministry does and that's what uh, we've been doing since 1996. <laughs> okay, it's a little while. Okay, there we are. That's Anli and I. It's, and isn't it amazing? I'll say this just quickly. God prepares you for your mission in life. Don't think you're sitting here tonight and listening to this or come to this uh, organization just because it's in in Afrikaans we say tufalach who's Afrikaans tufalach means coincidental but it's also if you break up that word tufalach it means and then the light fell yeah there we go so the, that tufalach becomes the light for your future and so we didn't know, when we went to Israel, we didn't have a heart for Israel or the Jewish people very much, except obviously if you read the Bible, you've got to have some heart for the people of God, otherwise there's something wrong with you. But there we got a real love and that's where we put a lot of our effort and, and, uh, and uh, you know, energies behind that. And then the other thing we, we, God prepared us for was the Salem Biblical Garden that some of you have now visited. And I'll be very short on this because you've been there. But in Israel, you are constantly walking into the footsteps of Jesus. You're going to a place where he actually preached. You're going to Capernaum where he lived and you can see Peter's house and you can get on a boat and go on the, on the Sea of Galilee and you can go up to the hill of Beatitude, where the Beatitudes were, and all of these things. Go to Jerusalem and actually see Caiaphas's house in the pit where they put Jesus down in, and uh, where uh, Pontius Pilate actually held the, um, 
cross-examinations and stuff. You can't not be touched by it because this book, even though it's a book and there's thousands of these books and they're thousands of years old and people have got them on their shelves and it's dust, but this is reality. This book is alive. This book contains the Spirit of God. It is God-inspired. And when you connect with the geography, the culture, the language of the Bible, you are immersed in it in a way that really uh, just helps you to read this with even deeper appreciation and understanding. Do you understand what I'm saying? Makes a difference, okay? So who is booking to go to Israel before the end of the year? <laughs> okay. So if you could just put that slide up for me, because in Israel there's obviously they're trying to group some of the artifacts and stuff together so that the tour groups can go there and see some of the things that, uh, that are important, biblically speaking. And so uh, we've tried to do that out in the fall. We've got a 10 hectare piece of land and uh, we've got this uh, circular route here which takes you past 12 uh, artifacts and uh, artworks and all sorts of things that we've got. Uh, the crosses and the empty tomb and stuff like that. Uh, it doesn't really, you know, like change your, your belief system dramatically to know that the first century tomb that Jesus was laid in was actually cut into a rock and there was a big rolling stone there, like this for instance, and that it was a family tomb and there was a, 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 bed, a stone bed in there and when you first person in the family died, you were put in there, the stone was rolled over and you put in and they, they balsamed you to disintegrate quicker, to decompose because in a year's time they're going to open that tomb again and they're going to collect your bones and put it with the fathers. So there's a bone box, it's called the ossuary. And um, then they close the thing again and the tomb's available for the next guy. I don't know how many people in one family could die at the same time, but it's quite a big structure. So, you know, just somehow it's not what you thought it was. It's not the place in the ground where they dug and, and put him and he, there was a stone on top of his head or something. It's one of those. It's a first century tomb. And that's what it looked like. And that's why there was this stone that was rolled up and down and out and opened up so that people could get in and out. And that's how it worked. A really small example, maybe even not all that significant, but when you read this again, it's not going to be the same. You're not going to think of a grave like a grave, you're going to think of a first century tomb in Israel. So many of the things along the route are like that, except obviously we give a lot of uh, commentary with it and the guided tours and the stuff that goes along with it. So we want to invite you all to go to Paul and to see that and to enjoy that. I'm sure you will. Right, could I have a next slide?
The next line is actually, you can just try and make it as big as possible there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The next slide, Peter, uh, you must help me here because you're the man uh, in this field. I can talk to you about Israel all night long, but this is your field. But I'll try and say my little bit. In our wanderings and in our talks with people and that, obviously, you get to know everybody from all sorts of walks of life. One of my big friends is actually uh, Catholics and I've known them from varsity days and we just had wonderful times together. And um, we actually, huh, he likes to make music. Anybody here like the music from the 60s, 70s? <laughs> He knows all the words, he can play guitar and you can have a wonderful time. But as, as our families have grown and their kids have got bigger and our kids are bigger, we sort of start getting more into the meat of things, you know, discussion of things that are not always so superficial. And wow, man, I'm telling you, we've had the most monstrous discussions <laughs> in the last year or two. And you try and find out what's going on in this man's head. He's got an MBA and it's not actually to, to break him down. He is a marvelous and his wife both marvelous people. But uh, they grew up in a culture that is really all embracing. And we've even been invited to their parents' uh, funerals. And when we get there and we see the prayers that they pray and uh, how they have to pay money up front to the priest for, for uh, purgatory, paying to get his family out of purgatory quicker and that, you suddenly get to a place where you, you start feeling uncomfortable because it's certainly not what we believe. And um, so we've been having a bit of a teta too now of late. And uh, this week, must have been for tonight, he sent me this, this Catholic circle. And he makes this incredible uh, statement here. Um, the broader the circle, the more distant from the core. <laughs> okay. And so there's the Catholic Church. Full deposit of faith in 33 AD, okay? And they carried that on and on and on. And it was only in 1517. Did you know that? <laughs> but these other guys came with other stories. <laughs> and so the Lutheran, the Anglican, the Calvinist, Presbyterian, Baptist, the Methodist, and outside of that circle is even the other guys, you know. <laughs> and so tonight, if we, we can spend a couple of minutes with this, I would like to have a little bit of a more interactive session with you and ask you, if you look at that picture, what actually happened from 33 AD to 1517? Where were the people? Where were the people that were reading the Bible? Why did they only wake up in 1517? Or was the Catholic Church right? And these are just uh, troublemakers and rabble-rousers. And so <laughs> it's a good opportunity for you to actually test yourself a little bit here by just...
venturing a few comments, just ordinary stuff, no deep stuff. What actually happened that people were for 1,517 years happy <coughs> to be Catholics around the world? Yes, sir. I would say that they, they weren't Roman Catholic as we would think of Roman Catholics. The early church was like we read of the Corinthian church and yeah. the various churches in the New Testament. It was that they didn't have relics and yeah. Um, worshipping Mary and saying the Our Fathers and yeah. the steps of the cathedrals and yeah. um, I wouldn't say that the, the Catholic Church started in 33 AD. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so I think the church um, fell away uh. and backslid uh, into the Roman Catholic Church as we would think of it. Yeah. And then there was the Reformation. Yeah. And then Lutheran Church. But you must admit it's a long period, a thousand five hundred years to get to that point. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm just being a little bit facetious uh, here. I want a little bit more comments and that, but I appreciate exactly what you're saying. Yeah. This reminds us of the parable that we read in the text. Mm -hmm. the church is a field. In every generation, you have the wheat and the tares in the visible church. Yeah. Those who truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who are the elect, as well as those who uh, are Christian in name only, mm. uh, who trust in themselves for salvation. So, prior to the Reformation, that existed as well. The Reformation did not create a new church, it reformed the church which always existed. Mm. That's a good point. There was a reformation of the existing order and a change from that point of view. Yep. Yeah, the Roman Catholic Church happened to be very powerful. Yeah. Helped the, the, uh, generations to continue. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a very valid point. Church was very powerful and uh, it wasn't so easy. Yep. Yeah. I, uh, so I, I think the Roman Catholic Church claims to be in 33 AD because they claim Peter as their Pope, mm. their first Pope. And that's if, right. if that's true, then that's really where it started. But nowhere in Scripture can we find that there was any such thing as a Pope. Yeah. And, yeah. Mm. Yeah, good point. Oh, we're getting closer and closer, yeah? Um, well, haven't the Bible been, actually, it's been Latin all that time. So it's as probably you look at all the other circles, it's like very close to each other. So it probably only when you the translate to the Bible and everybody could start reading the Bible. Yeah. Well, well, that's that's a really good point. Really good point. See, these are these are the little steps that, or the things that that kept people actually in a kind of a slavery to this church. What else was there? You've mentioned some really relevant stuff, but there's quite a bit more. There's the synagogue of Christiani, where the Gentiles went to worship the Jews. Uh, sorry, I didn't hear that exactly. The synagogue of Christiani. Yeah. It's like a Jewish synagogue where the Gentiles went to worship the Jews. Okay. So in the beginning, the early church is saying there was a bit of a, 
a mixture of the Messianic believers and the, and the Christian and the Gentile believers, and so they weren't really even part of that. And then there's also a schism between um, the Reformation time and the Radical Reformation with Anabaptist and the English yeah. broke off from the truth. Well, that yeah. thing. Yeah. So that also points to the fact that uh, the Reformation, some people thought that the Reformation had not actually gone far enough and should have actually done more. So, good. Uh, who else was there still? Yeah? Right. It's interesting that Gregory the Great, the Roman Catholic claim is one of the best popes in history. He lived in the 6th century. Yeah. He once said that any bishop or pastor who claims to be a universal bishop of the whole universal jurisdiction of the whole church is antichrist. Hmm. So, how's papal infallibility applied there? Yeah. The and he was a pope. He was. So, <laughs> so. talking to himself, mm. <laughs> in a way. Charles Spurgeon said the papacy is the seat of the Antichrist. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people that can believe that, I don't know. <laughs> I think, yeah, let me not say anything. What yeah. else is there? What actually else happened that took them away from. <laughs> But later than that point, I agree with you. 33 AD is really putting a, a finer edge to it. But the, the first church, just to come back to Israel, started in Jerusalem and Samaria and then outer portions of the earth that went out after persecution. But that first church wasn't anything like the Catholic Church, was it? House Church. Yeah, absolutely. So this, this, the first church had the traditions of Christ. And uh, they had communion and uh, people were serving each other there. And um, they were singing and meeting together. And the first, what's amazing to me, the leader of the church was John, right? In Jerusalem. People are looking at me like I chose the wrong name. James. James, they will. James was the first brother of Jesus, right? Was the actual leader of the church. But Peter was around. He, he was there. So how come if, you know, if God said you the guy and everything's going to rest on you and you're going to be the church, how come he wasn't the head of the church? So there's a lot of things that I can see what happened is that the, the first church and their first love for Christ, actually as, it, as the time expanded, it appears to me that things started changing because the, the leaders of the Catholic Church brought in new, I don't know what should I call it, should I call it doctrines. Yeah. Okay. Almost said that word. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't want to judge too, too harshly, but I mean, you can. They brought in all sorts of stuff. I think the veneration of Mary came in only at 500 after Christ. And uh, many of these things, I think uh, I speak under correction. But as they moved away from this circle, there should be hundreds of little circles around here. Because as they moved, they changed the, the, the goalposts. 
purgatory got introduced. I think purgatory came in as a doctrine in about 700. I'm not sure if you can help me with this. But now suddenly you had to pay to get people to go into heaven if they were really uh, going to be destined to go to heaven. And then there were the indulgences that were added. You know, you could actually pay for your sins. And then there was the persecution of anybody trying to read the Bible that wasn't uh, able to, to read it in Latin. Uh, and you were only not allowed to actually interpret the Bible because you weren't a priest. And this circle of, of innermost worship and fellowship and, and adoration of Jesus became exponentially further and further and further away from the truth. None of the things you've mentioned and that I've mentioned now can actually be found in the Bible. What I can see. And uh, so, in the same breath as you pointed out, the papacy was so powerful. I mean, they were actually like a, a nation with its own army. And they proclaimed kings in different countries. And they actually owned their own countries. And if you dared say anything, what happened to you? You were actually burnt at the stake. So it took a long time to get, it's almost like the 400 years, it's just longer, that Israel was in slavery in Egypt. And it was Moses that came through and heard the cries and led them out. And yeah, Martin Luther and all the other wonderful reformers came and God put it in their hearts to take those people out. Because if you wanted to get to the promised land, I don't think that was the way to go. So, a very, very strong assault on the people in terms of language, culture, traditions, lies. I mean, you pointed out there's nobody, nobody said that uh, Peter was the first bishop of, of Rome. And at one point, uh, the capital of the, of the empire was in Constantinople. It wasn't even Rome. So, the Bishop of Constantinople became the guy. So the thing is just so horrid and so many people died at the stake. And if we think of the Inquisition, I don't know if you've ever been in Europe and you've gone to see the torture tools that they used during the Inquisition to force people into towing their line. Onion, I saw an exhibition like that in Hanover or somewhere in Germany. And um, I don't think she... Portugal. Yeah, in Portugal, that's right. She lasted about 10 steps into that place. And then she ran. You cannot believe man's inhumanity to man. And that's in the name of God. Imagine the bishop or the inquisitor representing the church sitting next to you while there's a pointed steel structure and you hoist it up and you fall on top of that thing and you do that until you say i recant i am sinful i am this i am that and then if the guy died in the process 
it was a bonus because the Pope and the Inquisitor shared the money of his estate. So they often went to very rich people and said, we think you've got sin in your life, brother, come and sit here. <laughs> and it was no joke. But the church got richer and richer and richer. In fact, all of these other heresies that have been added on are actually money-making schemes. I'm sorry to say that. I'm saying it on a, on, a, on a video, which is, you know, it sounds callous to say. But the whole idea of purgatory, uh, which, you know, comes from the book of Jubilees, which is really not even in our Bible, um, it, makes, it must make a fortune. People are going to Europe, uh, friends of ours went to Europe, they went to a church without the Black Madonna and you pay the priest at the Black Madonna and his prayers will go into purgatory and get your people out of purgatory quicker. And the Black Madonna will help. And 10,000 euros and 50,000 euros and how much are you willing to pay for your father and your mother? And all of those things are just frightening stuff. And so, um, Peter, I'd like you to say something and then, then I'll close. What do you say? Thank you. Well, this is phenomenal propaganda, actually. <laughs> but, of course, God's always had a 7,000 who've never bowed the knee to bowl. And it's not true to assume that there were no great Christian movements and individuals in all those centuries before the Reformation. And unfortunately, Jack Chick, who produced some excellent evangelistic tracts, but his history is appalling. Uh, he has also, through well, his comic, Jack, yeah, Jack. No, the Jack Chick, <laughs> you know, Chick publications, oh, yeah. he does some great evangelism, but um, he suggests that there were no Christians really before, the, from the first century till Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses and church doors, which of course is nonsense. There was, before Martin Luther, there was of course the Hussites and the Wycliffe Lollards and Jerome Savonarola and the Waldensians going all the way back to the 12th century. And there were the Albigensians and there were the uh, many different groups that sprang up at different times, and that's not even counting the Orthodox Christians and the Nestorians, who were doing phenomenal missionary work all across uh, Asia, and the Coptic Christians in Egypt and in Ethiopia. And there was, the Church of God has always been far bigger than we've ever known, imagined, understood, and then amongst the Catholic Church, you still had people who were plainly evangelical, like Raymond Lull, missionaries to Muslims, and Francis Assisi, who's phenomenal in his love for the Lord and his devotion. And then you've still got to, we just sang at the beginning here tonight, Fairest Lord Jesus, Sean Stehe Yesu, the Crusaders. And it's hard to imagine these brutal knights singing Fairest Lord Jesus. This, but that was the Crusaders hymn, it was their favorite hymn. And obviously the Crusaders were motivated by a lot of love and devotion for Christ. In fact, one of the greatest devotional books ever written was written on loving God by the man who promoted the Second Crusade the most. Do you remember his name? Was it Bernard of Clever? Bernard of Clever wrote On Loving God, one of the greatest devotional books ever. And he was the, the primary mover of the Second Crusade. 
and motivate. And these knights were in many cases motivated by love for Christ and love for their neighbor. And, you know, we've had so much propaganda over the years. So many people think that church history is not one big black hole from the first century through till the 16th century and not much happened in between, which just isn't true. There's always been some dedicated, phenomenal people of God. And you just have to study what Tertullian wrote and what Augustine wrote and Cyprian and Oregon. These were the early church fathers, all North Africans, going to the fourth century. You realize, my, these people really knew and loved God. And then we start uh, reading Anselm, uh, who was in the 12th century in England. And, and you start realizing they really knew the Lord. They, they understood conversion. And it may surprise us to know that people in different cultures, different languages, different church denominations and traditions had a similar experience of love for the Lord. So uh, all of this should just excite us to know that our history is far more deep and varied and exciting. And it can be like that. We can travel across the world and we meet somebody from Ethiopia, Mongolia, Korea, all over. And you find we've actually got a lot in common. We've, We've met the same Lord, we read the same Bible, we sang many of the same hymns, and uh, it's like when our, our Reformation Society really started back in 1994, when a frontline mission team went into Angola and driving into what the Portuguese called the ends of the earth, Kwanda Kabanga province. They heard the sound that they immediately recognized the tune, although they couldn't understand the words because the people were singing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God in Ovumbundu. And it was 31st October, and they were celebrating Reformation Day in the utmost parts of earth, in a remote, dusty part of Angola. And there they, they were celebrating the five solas, as we've got in the window in the stairwell there. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fidi, Sola Gracia, Solus Christus, Sola Dea Gloria. The five solas of the Reformation. I mean, how amazing is that? And we've gone to amazing places. I remember the year I was married. We celebrated Easter here. We married on Easter Saturday. We went to Romania with Laura's parents and we celebrate Easter in Romania because it might have been a few weeks later, but they had Easter on the Orthodox calendar. And again, there was people in Romania who, they might have a different calendar if we wish from the same Lord. Yeah. As it's just so exciting to know that we've got this worldwide family. You can go anywhere in the world. You can meet someone from another culture, religion, background, but you can be brothers or sisters in Christ. And that's just, that's an amazing experience. And in the past, there was so much division. So, yes, this sort of thing, the Roman Catholics might want to delude themselves that right from the start, Peter was probably wearing the whole papal outfit, carrying this big stick and sitting on this papal throne. And um, what were they thinking? Do they really think the early church looked anything like the Roman Catholic Church looks like in the last few centuries? And of course, it does in no way to be compared. And you can see how all of the apostles died for Christ. Why do bishops have a, a red or purple tunic to represent the blood of the martyrs? Bishops were martyred at an eight times greater rate than the average Christian. If you became a bishop, the chances were you were going to die for your faith. And that's the way it was for the first three centuries of the church. So the, the color of the bishops' vestments were to testify the fact that they had to be ready to die for Christ. That's what witness means. By the way, martyr, the word martyr just means witness. But now we think of martyr as suffering and dying. But it's because the early Christians, if you witness for Christ, you're going to suffer for it and you probably die for it. 
And that's why the word martyr now is associated with death, but the word just means witness. And so you wonder how many true Christians we've got around today. When we think of the Christians we've met in our mission, whether we're talking about in communist Mozambique and Angola in the 80s, the Christians in Sudan who've suffered under Islamic Jihad, the Christians out the whole of Eastern Europe and Russia who suffered under communist persecution for so long. And some of us wondered if there was a church left in Russia or China. And now we know, forget about millions, hundreds of millions of Christians. It's just beyond comprehension what God has been doing under persecution, in spite of persecution, in places where we never thought of. When I was converted, the common belief was that Christianity in China was extinct. There were no Christians in China. That was what we thought in 1977. And I remember an overseas missionary fellowship missionary coming to Palms Baptist, telling us to pray for the church in China. And I remember some of us looking a little awkward, looking at one another like, what's he talking about? Pray for the church in China. It's no church in China. It got annihilated in the great cultural revolution. There are no Christians in China. And that's what we all thought. And it took a few years for it to come out that there's a lot of Christians in China. There's millions of Christians in China. Is that over 140 million Christians in China is the latest reports. Do you know there's more born-again Bible-believing Christians in China than there are in the United States of America? Yeah. Of course, they've got more people, so the percentage is less, but the numbers are huge. I mean, just think of what's going on around the world. So, and it all started in an upper room 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem with a handful of people. Just a handful of people. Originally just 12 men, four or five women, then 120 meeting in the upper room for prayer meeting. And look how far it's gotten so far. And we're nowhere near the end yet. I mean, there's a lot still to come. So what a privilege to be part of this movement. And that's why getting back to basics, getting back to the Bible, there's nothing more powerful than getting people back to the Bible. And I think that's where Salem Biblical Gardens is, getting people back to redemptive history, back to the Bible, back to the biblical lands, back to biblical events, and getting people to get back to the basics and what's most important. And the most important thing is our relationship with the Lord and our salvation. Yeah. And sharing that salvation, letting people know. And I think this will, you know, maybe not all of you are ready yet to book the ticket and pay the cost of going to Israel, but we can all get to Akhtapara um, <laughs> down the road on the road to Wellington. I mean, that's not far. And that's a great beginning to be able to, to get back in touch with our roots. And more important than that, getting back into Bible on a daily basis. I mean, that's going to change everyone's life. Amen. So, Nick, other questions, comments? For Jack in particular, questions, comments? I want to say thank you very much for all of you that uh, participated and brought out all those truths. And I think tonight is a really fair opportunity to think about all those witnesses, those martyrs, that from the beginning knew that this is not what it should be, the truth and the word and the wonderful scriptures that they already had that were circulating wasn't matching up all these years. And so people gave their lives for it. I mean, imagine being burnt alive at the stake because you refused to bow the knee to the Pope or to the latest bull or whatever he brought out, which was unbiblical. And um, I just don't know this. Uh, to me, 
I wish people could help me pray for this friend of mine. So I say he's a very intellectual guy, but just, if you just, sorry, I don't want to belabor the point, but if you just look at the popes and what they did and how many people they killed and how debauched they were, now they were stealers and now they grabbed power and stuff. How can that be the vicar of Christ? It's impossible. And yet there's thousands of people that are blinded. We talk about Israel being partially blinded, but there's a billion odd people that are blinded to follow this faith. And so I think tonight, Lord Jesus, we just want to say how amazing it was that so many people gave their lives for the truth, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so we think of them and uh, we're just so grateful because otherwise we would never have got to that point of release in, in 1500s. And so, Lord, and tonight we just want to pray for the people in Catholicism. We know that there are wonderful believers there that are trying to struggle within the church, with the church. And it's an uphill battle. But Lord, give them strength and power to know that and when it's no longer necessary for them to have that job to get back into the fellowship of true believers. And Lord, open our eyes to all the truth that is in the Bible and that you would encourage us, that your Spirit would lead us. You gave us the Holy Spirit to redeem us, not to redeem us, but to, to show us the way, to be the light, and to walk with us, and to tell us, whisper in our ears, not to the left or the right, but go there. And so make us sensitive, Lord, to your spirit, which you have been so wonderful to leave us on earth. And thank you for this evening. We hope, Lord, that something um, will stay with us about this, and that we would also be in a position to defend our faith when next we have that, that opportunity. Thank you for Peter and thank you for the Reformation Society as they also bring these truths and the history uh, back to the people. And we ask that in the wonderful and beautiful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.